Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Let's pray as we get ready to go into the message. God, we believe that um, out of all the voices that run through our lives, yours should be and can be the loudest, the clearest, if we'll listen for you. And so many of the voices speaking into our lives are leading us astray, but God, we pray that your voice would cut through all of that this morning and bring guidance and hope and truth. I pray also, God, that you would um, really heal the heart of those who are struggling with feelings of isolation and loneliness. It's just really on the rise, and we know that, God, it has affected some in our church family. And we pray, God, that you would use your word, you would come and minister through your Holy Spirit so that people would feel like they are not walking alone, that they have you, that we have one another. We pray that you would accomplish this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're starting a new series this morning, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that series as the message wears on. But the title of the message, we could get this first slide on there. <clears throat> there we go. The title of the first message is Lonely in America. I thought about just calling it lonely, but really, I'm not talking about anywhere else right now. I'm talking about here in our country. Lonely in America. And it's, uh, it's something that has rather obsessed me lately because I've been doing an, an incredible amount of reading in this area, um, sociological stuff, some Christian stuff. And I'm, I'm listening to more people talk to me about how they feel. And what I realized is there's a lot of people who are feeling very alone. I think if you looked around the room and just gauged it on how people look, you might be fooled. I think we'd be very surprised who we discover, even in our own church family, is feeling very alone, very isolated. So I want to start with a story about a woman named Yvette Vickers. She's a former Playboy playmate and B-movie actress. You might know her best in her starring role as the Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. I can't believe I've actually preached long enough that I worked this movie into a sermon somehow. But you know what? This was a big movie when it came out. <clears throat> a lot of people were wowed by the effects and all that. And Yvette Vickers was the 50-foot woman. Um, she would have been 83 uh, when she, her body was discovered, April 27th of 2011. And I said her body was discovered because nobody knows when she died. When a neighbor noticed that there were cobwebs and yellowing letters collecting in her mailbox, um, her neighbor let herself in through a broken window and found Yvette Vickers' body mummified where she sat and died. She had been dead long enough and undiscovered. Strangely, her heater was still running. Her computer was still on. And this story shocked the nation. It went viral all over the Internet on blogs and on Facebook because it was a really sad story, but it was a gut punch to us as a nation. How is it possible that someone who once enjoyed something of a life in the public spotlight, who still had Facebook fans and all of that, could die so alone that her passing from this world wasn't even noticed for at least a year. 
How does somebody in the twilight years of their life become so disconnected from society that when they die, their death is not even noticed for that long? Long enough for her body to become mummified in her apartment. Now, that's a pretty extreme story. My guess is that most of us here are not nearly as disconnected as Yvette Vickers was. But I guess that a fair number of us have been in that deep, dark place at some point in our lives. Where we felt alone, isolated, where we actually wondered thoughts like this, you know, self-pitying thoughts like, if I died, I wonder if anyone would even notice or if anyone would show up at my funeral. I wonder how many would actually shed tears if I no longer walked on the earth. And those are the thoughts, the musings of people who feel very disconnected from the rest of the world. Honestly wondering, if I die today, who would even notice? Who would come to the funeral? And I think, I think many of us have been in that place of wondering those very things when we're at our lowest moments. Even though we're not as isolated as Yvette Vickers, there seems to be a growing body of evidence that loneliness and isolation in America are growing. And some of you would, even, would argue it's growing to epidemic levels. So many people, even those who on the surface seem connected to other human beings, are struggling with this deep weight, this heavy weight of feeling alone. There was one huge study recently done that made a lot of shockwaves. Uh, it was called Social, Social Isolation in America. And it was a very broad um, study of aloneness measured by how, how interconnected are we when it comes down to do we have people in our lives with whom we share the heaviest burdens, our greatest triumphs, and our greatest troubles. Now listen to what it says in this study. Between 1985 and 2004, roughly 20 years, the number of people saying there's no one with whom they discuss important matters nearly tripled to 24.6%. Here's, a, here's what that means. One in four Americans have nobody with whom they can talk about important things. We're not talking about Derrick Rose's injury and when he might return to the Bulls. We're talking about the weighty stuff that keeps us up at night, that causes us to cry and worry. There's a lot of other stuff this study revealed, but let me tell you another study uh, done by the AARP, from whom I've recently begun receiving correspondence, <clears throat> to my great shock, until I, I, was, I, was, I realized they begin hitting you from 45 and up. And so I was, at first I was like, what happened here? But um, they did a, a pretty broad survey to, to gauge the loneliness level among older Americans, aged 45 and over, and what they found is that 35% of older Americans were found to be chronically lonely. And what was eye-opening for me about this particular survey is they used something called the UCLA Loneliness Scale to get at how, how people would gauge their loneliness. And the scale is very insightful. Uh, it doesn't allow you to game the answers too much. It really is a good measure of how isolated a person feels. And I wanted to share with you some of the statements or questions that the respondents responded to because I wonder how some of us would respond to these questions, okay? And so as you read these, uh, you don't have to say anything out loud, but I wonder how they will strike your heart and how you would identify with them. There is no one I can turn to. I do not feel part of a group of friends. 
I am no longer close to anyone. I feel left out. No one really knows me well. My social relationships are superficial. People are around me, not with me. Now, as you read those statements, if you were asked in, in a survey to respond honestly, how would you respond to some of those things? I mean, would you strongly agree, somewhat agree, disagree, totally disagree? How would you feel about some of those statements? And I think it would surprise us if we got really honest how deeply many people today are affected by these feelings of isolation. <clears throat> Here's another trend that I, I saw in my study this past couple of weeks. 50% of American adults today are not married. So this is one of the first times in the history of this country that the majority of the adult population are not married. And 28%, nearly a third of American households, are now people living alone. Now, I'm not suggesting that is a bad thing. What I'm saying is that coupled with the rising trend in stated loneliness is troubling because whether you choose to live alone, go solo or not, and many people are, are proclaiming this, this trend of single living to be a, a virtue, a triumph for American culture, whether you choose to be alone or whether you feel banished to loneliness, the reason it troubles me is because I think Scripture reveals right from the very beginning that we were not meant to walk by ourselves. That the way that God created human beings was with a very profound need for companionship and relationship. You know, the first time in the Bible story that God declares something not good, and this was during the creation process, before sin had entered the picture, the first time God declares something not good is when he looks at Adam and realizes, and this is not like it dawns on God, but he's making a statement for us. Adam, it is not good for you to be alone. Now, as he's saying that, obviously, he's right there with him. So he's not technically alone because God is with him. But God is saying, there's an aloneness you have that I won't fill. Because I didn't just make you for me, God says, but I made you for other people. It is at the heart of who we are as human beings that we not only need it, we, require, we are built for relationship. Now, there are some people who say, I don't need people. I'm fine by myself. But if you really dig deep, almost every single case, there's pain behind that position. There is a defensive posture, something that caused those people to convince themselves they don't need anyone else. But the truth is God himself made us to need one another. We are created for community. And so I'm going to begin a series called True Community. <clears throat> And throughout this series, I want to address some biblical guidance on how true community can be built. But I wanted to start with this message. Thank you, Steve. John, I got water. Um, I, wanted to, um, I wanted to start by building the case for why this matters. And maybe for some of you, you're saying to yourself right now, uh, you know, a sermon on loneliness doesn't apply to me. Okay? It doesn't apply to me. Well, I want to give you a few challenges, a little bit of pushback, just in case you're getting ready to check out and say, you know what, I'm pretty full, my dance card is full, I got lots of friends, talk to other people. So let me just give you a, a couple of challenges. The first is that you might be in denial. Okay, you might be in denial. 
And here's why. I think there is a strong cultural bias in America to regard loneliness as weakness. I've been reading a book called The Lonely American, a fascinating book, um, a sociological study of the phenomenon of growing loneliness in our country. And here's what the authors write. Talking about loneliness in America is deeply stigmatized. We see ourselves as self-reliant people who do not whine about neediness. To wistfully describe how lonely we feel is simply not socially acceptable. And what they're saying, they make this case quite thoroughly, is you look like a wuss if you talk about being lonely. So we'd rather take the other side of the myth of the Lone Ranger and say, I don't need people because I'm self-reliant. I'm pretty good all by myself. I know not a lot of people are interested in me, but the truth is I don't need other people. I can stand on my own. And so there is a stigma associated with admitting that I feel lonely because it makes you look pathetic as an American. And so it's possible that that societal pressure has caused you to stop paying attention to the feelings of isolation that are really there, especially men. Can I just challenge the metaphor? I think men, we hate talking about, uh, I need help. I'm a little lonely. How does it sound to you when I say that as a male? I'm lonely. No matter how manly I say it, it's hard to, 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 to hear it as an American with American ears and respect what you're hearing. And so it's possible that you've trained yourself to deny that there's any loneliness that affects you. Let me give you another challenge to those who feel this doesn't apply to me. It's possible that you might be too easily satisfied. That you feel all filled up relationally because you're... Your requirement for relationship is really superficial. You might say, hey, look, I got lots of Facebook friends. Do you know I have 1,248 Facebook friends? I don't even know who half these people are, (laughs) honestly. I I might have run into them once on a speaking engagement. They sent a friend request, and I can't scream. I just go, yes, yes. I I just friend everybody. (laughs) Okay, that's how I am. So maybe you've got a lot of Facebook friends. Maybe your social calendar is very active. Maybe there hasn't been a weekend you haven't had a booking in as long as you can remember. And that's great. I'm not trying to to look askance at you and say I'm a skeptic, but I'm just saying, could it be possible, though, that if you really looked at the nature of all these plentiful interactions, none of them run very deep at all? Could it be possible that rather than having real friends What you've done in adult life is collected a network of acquaintances. In fact, you'll know this if when you open up a really serious subject, everyone in the group gets weirded out. If you are a guy who has a lot of buddies and you're at the bar all the time watching the game and eating wings and laughing and joking and talking bad about your girlfriends and wives, and if that's your your social fabric, try one day going, hey guys, I just got to open my heart up to you a little bit tonight. Um, I've been going through something, and I think I need your support as brothers. Can we just talk? Can we turn off the game and just talk? And I want you to gauge the response from the group. Ah, you had us going. We thought you were serious for a second there, weirdo. That's probably what's going to happen in 90% of the male groups of friends in America. That's not a scientific number, but I just watch men fellowship. I'm engaged in male fellowship, and I realize it's frustrating. Even while I'm in the midst of it, I'm thinking, gosh, I wish there was something more, but I don't know how to break into that something more. How do we turn this around from sports talk or tech talk to the really meaningful stuff? And so it's possible that you feel like you're totally okay relationally because your expectations and your standards for a relationship are very thin. 
The truth is, for many of us, we say we have lots of good friends. That's a statement of historical fact. Because when we're younger, when life is simpler, we do have really good friendships. But how many of you, here's a great question. Those of you who are middle-aged and married, if you're getting married all over again today, who would be your bridal party? Who would be your best man, your groomsman? And chances are, for a vast number of American adults, you'd have to think back to, all right, who do I really know from way back? Who do I have the longest history with? Not who is actually walking with me in this important way right now. I have drinking buddies. I have football game buddies. But who's really my friend, honestly? The one who won't push me away when things get a little weird and I start needing this person. And so it's possible that you are just too easily satisfied, and that's why you don't feel like there's a problem at all. Now, I'm not trying to create problems where they don't exist. If, if you're still okay, go ahead and zone out. But here's the last challenge. Nobody should zone out. No. It's possible that you just might be missing the loneliness of others. Maybe you actually are great. But isn't it possible that someone right in front of your face is dying of loneliness? And part of the reason they feel alone is because they perceive in you a total apathy and disregard what they're feeling. I know some people who are married and their spouse is the person who makes them feel the loneliest. Is it possible that you are totally satisfied so you become like the person in a third world country shoveling food and going, I don't get what the big deal is about global hunger. I'm full. I'm, I'm so full. In fact, I'm too full. Could it be that you have that insensitivity of the full so that you don't realize the plight of the hungry right in front of your face. And so I'm going to challenge you a little bit. If you think this doesn't apply to you, I can't see how you could hold that thought any longer in your heart. Maybe you're doing great relationally, but I'll bet you every one of us, right in our orbit of influence, have people who we think are okay because we only see them superficially. But deep down, they are struggling with feelings of isolation and loneliness that are taking away their life. So I just want to wrap up with a couple other thoughts here. Where does this loneliness come from? Why are we so lonely? Why, why is it that so many Americans, one in four, have nobody to go to to share their greatest triumphs and their greatest struggles? Why is it that a third or more of our older Americans entering the twilight of their lives when they should have a full spectrum of relationships built over their lives. Why is it over a third of our older Americans are walking over that hill alone? Where is all this aloneness and loneliness coming from? And I will acknowledge that alone and lonely are not the same thing, but they are more related than we like to admit. Well, it's such a big question, so complicated in addressing it. So I'm not going to pretend I have all the answers, but I want to share with you at least two reasons I think are contributing. And the truth is that I think a lot of the loneliness is inflicted on us because so many people who have their dance cards full have stopped noticing those who aren't dancing at all. And so I think that's a part of the pain of loneliness for many of you is that other people seem to have it all together and they have all their friends, but no one ever notices that I go home alone every week that I'm never invited to any of the parties. No one seems to notice, and that's the part of it that hurts the most for you, is everybody's collective disregard for your aloneness. That the only time I'm ever at a social function is when I'm the one organizing it. Nobody ever invites me to anything. So I understand that some of your loneliness 
is inflicted on you by the, by the insensitivity of the collective. And I don't want to just steamroll over that. We're going to address that dynamic head-on during this series. But I also want to acknowledge that a lot of our feelings of isolation are self-inflicted. It, a lot of the, the, the books being written share and echo the same sentiment. The loneliness that's growing in America is something we're doing to ourselves in large part. And so let me, let me give you a couple theories for why we're so lonely. And I think they both reduce to an idolatry, making idols of good things which have become primary things, greater things than anything else. First idolatry I want to talk about is idolatry of success. I don't think it's very hard for the American dream to become something like a nightmare for a lot of people. When you stop chasing the, the golden egg and you realize it's become like a form of bondage. And you work and you work and you chase and you chase and no matter how many times you catch something, you never really feel like you can stop yet. And after all, you realize you're no longer in control of the race. But somehow it has started to control you. In fact, some people work so hard at acquiring things that they never have time to actually use or enjoy. Do you know how many times I've talked to guys about my desire, my dream to have a small boat one day? They said, I had a boat. (laughs) I rarely meet guys who have a boat. Everybody I know had a boat. They're like, I had a boat. It was in, in my little fantasy land. I would go out with the family and water ski on weekends. Problem is, it just never happened. I was so busy working to pay for the boat, we never took the boat out. And after a while, I'm like, why am I paying every year to dock this stupid thing? I'm just going to sell it and get my money back. I think that's a, a part of the cycle of the American idolatry of success. Listen to, listen to what the, the authors of The Lonely American said. Talk to Americans about their lives And one thing you will hear over and over again is how busy most people feel. Guilty. People complain about being too busy, but if you listen closely, you will hear that people are proud of their busyness. It serves as a badge of toughness, success, and importance. When most people talk about how busy they are, it is simultaneously a complaint and a boast. I can identify with this. I used to feel really insecure when people looked at my calendar on my screen and there was a lot of white blank spots. I felt like a loser. I'm like, well, I do stuff. Don't worry. I'm doing stuff. I felt weird, but when when you see a week where every white spot is filled with blue, my my calendar, every appointment is blue. And I go, check it out. (laughs) I'm dying right now. I'm so in demand. I'm so busy. I, I might squeeze you in next Wednesday at like 10, 15 to 10, 17, maybe that two-minute window. I mean, I think we, in a way, are exactly like that. Because we are chasing success in an idolatrous way, we have started to worship busyness as one of the greatest virtues of American life. If you're busy, you're important. If you're busy, you're desirable. If you're busy, you're getting stuff done. You're more productive than the sad sacks who sit around waiting for the reruns to start. Here's another staggering observation. I just don't understand this. American workers gave back or didn't take advantage of 574 million vacation days in 2005 alone. That's equivalent of 20,000 lifetimes of vacation. And already we Americans are the least vacation-taking workforce in the developed world. In France, I think they get like seven months of vacation a year. 
Australia, I think they go to work like 10 days a year or something like that. And here we are in America, we're already, like, we think three weeks of vacation is a great boon. And even then, we're not even using half of it. We're giving away 20,000 lifetimes worth of unused vacation days because we are so busy working, working, working. Working, working, working. It's become the easiest rock in a hard place that we find ourselves stuck between. How many people have come home and said with great apology to their families, it's work, I can't, and we talk like we have no options here. Look, honey, I can't. I just, it's work. I have to. And you wonder, why do you go to school and then grad school and then get all these certifications? And why do you become an executive on a career track when you basically talk like a fry cook at McDonald's who can't go to the bathroom without permission? You say things, I can't. Who said, why, do you even, why even chase that path in life if your hands are so bound that there's so many things you are not free to do? Is that really a life? It seems like so many people are making a living that they forgot to make a life. Listen to what Ecclesiastes 4, 7 through 8 have to say about this. Most people believe this is probably Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived writing, but we're not sure, and so we will kind of leave it at this very wise man observed looking over human life. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person has, who has no other either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So this wise man writing Ecclesiastes is basically surveying the full spread, the spectrum of the human experience. He's saying, my goodness, when you really take a look at the way we live as people, There is futility, vanity, foolishness everywhere you look. It's as if we have lost all sight of wisdom and the way we end up living is not any way people should choose to live, but we get stuck in a rut and say to ourselves in surrender, I guess this is as good as it's going to get. And the wise man says, no, that's not really true. It doesn't need to be that way. Let's wake up and realize there are some things done in the world in the name of human living that make no sense whatsoever. Here's a man, he observes, who works and works slavishly to pursue wealth and success, but he's never happy with what he gets. Because really, it's a form of addiction where what you get is not really the point. It's just like a drug addict. Is it really the hit you just got that's going to satisfy you forever? It's the hit you haven't taken yet that brings you forward, that moves your feet one in front of the other. The nature of addiction is that it's what you don't have that pulls your heart ahead. It's the the powerful word, I don't have it yet. And that's at the heart of every addiction. And so he says, when you look at this, the way people live, so busy chasing things, but they're not really happy. They never pause to ask, why am I doing this? Is there anyone with whom I share all of this truly? And for so many of those people, the answer is no. I don't even know why I'm doing this. He calls it vanity and an unhappy business. You know, I was reading um, a blog by a conservative writer named Rod Dreher. And recently, he had a sister who died of of illness. And he's originally from a very small town, but he's lived in large cities most of his adult life. And he went back to the small town, St. Francisville, Louisiana. It's 
it's really deep in the bayou. It's a really small town in America, like 2,000 people in the whole town. And going back and watching and helping his sister uh, pass from this world, he watched the value of small-town life and community in a way he never really experienced in his city living. And he made the, the big decision to scrap everything and move back to St. Francisville with his wife and his children. And it erupted this firestorm of emails, this flood of emails of people going, oh my gosh, it's awesome that you even have a small town to go to. I don't even know where I'm from anymore. My parents moved to like eight different places. The, the house I grew up in, somebody else owns it. Where am I from? Where would I even go back to? And so many people wrote. And I read a lot of these comments that people had left on his blog. But here's one of the most poignant, heartfelt testimonies from one of his close friends. Listen to what he wrote. Everything I've done has been for career advancement. Go for the money, the good jobs, and we have done well, but we are alone in the world. Almost everybody we know is like that. My family is all over the country. My kids only call if they want something. People like us, when we get old, our kids can't move back to care for us if they wanted to because we all go off to some golf resort to retire. Listen to what he says. It's hell. This is the world we have made for ourselves. It's the kind of observation you can only make when it's too late to change things, isn't it? This is the life, the world we have made for ourselves with this idolatry of success. I'm not suggesting that success is a bad thing, that you should be slouchy at your work to get more time with your family. What I'm saying is the idolatry of anything will rob you of your life. Be successful, but don't make an idol of it because it will cost you in the end so much more. There's another idolatry that I think we're in the grips of. The authors of The Lonely American Further Right related to the idolatry of freedom, our lives are spent in a tug of war between conflicting desires. We want to stay connected. That's true. But we want to be free. How do you have both? See, somewhere in our hearts, we watch the, the, the movies and we see a group of friends lounging around in, in Napa Valley with glasses of wine, laughing and telling old stories. And they seem to really know each other. There's no need for explanation. And you think, man, that just looks so attractive. These people don't just seem like acquaintances. They seem like they would really be there for each other, and they know each other, and they know the rhythms and the, the voice inflections, and they know enough to say, hey, listen, something is wrong, isn't it? And we long for that. We want people to know us that deeply. We want to know someone else like that. Why do you think the show Friends was so huge? Now, I don't know. I'm not entirely convinced that show was about friends but it was about the best American approximation of friends today, maybe. And it had a long running. Every, every major actor in that series was making well, like a million dollars an episode. Why? Because it touched on something. We all want to be a part of something like what those guys have. When Joey acts like an idiot and everybody else is still cool with it and... I wish we had something like that. And we were envious of those people. And so rather than forming friendships, we watched people have a fake friendship on TV for like eight years or something. It made them very wealthy for mimicking friendship on the television. See, built into true community is this strange tension that the very thing you want will cost you another thing that you don't want to give up. 
See, to enter into a relationship, there is always a price tag. When you get on your knee and ask a girl to marry you, she's having to say, I will not say yes to anyone else now. That's a cost. Because there might be another guy who's cooler who might ask you next year and you're like, darn it. The nature of all relationship is that it costs. There is a price tag. And one of the, the great costs is freedom. See, I think we all love the idea of being on our own. We can hit the open road, no entanglements, no attachments, no obligations. I like the idea that <clears throat> I looked at my calendar and my next 18 Saturdays are wide open. If I want to go, I might go to your party, but I don't have to go because nobody would really be that upset if I didn't show up. You're inviting me out of courtesy, but look, we're not chums. We're not like old buddies. So look, I get to, I get to have a, a dipping in of the toes into the community, but I don't ever have to dive all the way under and hold my breath. I think that's a very enticing scenario that so many Americans are pursuing. It's a myth. It can't happen. You can't kind of have community and kind of have freedom. Both of those things are mutually exclusive. If you want community, it's going to cost you your freedom. And if you want your freedom, it's going to cost you community. I don't see any other way around it. Freedom is one of the greatest gifts God gave to us. And in Jesus Christ, we were given a kind of freedom that was previously unavailable to the human race. Listen to what Paul writes about the nature of freedom. He says, it's part of the very calling in Christ that we have, for you have been called to live in freedom, but not freedom to satisfy your sinful nature, but freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Here's, let me break it down quickly for you. What Paul, I believe, is saying is this. Freedom was an expensive gift for God to give us, and you should not forfeit it lightly. Don't yield your freedom for any other reason than this. To forfeit that freedom voluntarily in order to build community and to love and serve others with whom you will walk in this life together. I can't think of any other good reason to forfeit the freedom which Christ made available to us at such a high cost. Don't ever forfeit your freedom to religious obligation to the pursuit of worldly things that will pass away. But when it comes to community, we finally have a motivation worth yielding our freedom for. I know that that freedom you feel to tear away and break off is pretty intoxicating. But I also know that when you're really honest about it, that lack of attachment starts to get to you. Because while you're free to break away, you realize everybody else also feels free to break away from you. There's no one who will chase you when you're putting out signals you don't want to be chased. There's nobody who cares about you when you say, please leave me alone. And even though you're annoyed when your girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse is always on you, like, come on, talk to me. What's wrong? I can't read your mind. Tell, and you're like, get away from me. But even as you're pushing them away, it does a comfort to that claustrophobia, isn't there? Somebody actually cares whether I live or die. Somebody's got the can opener on. They're trying to pry open that lid. Thank God for that. How sad would it be if you had stuff all bunched up and no one even... Hey, how you doing? Good. Oh, great. I'll stop worrying about you then. Thank you for saying great. How do you feel when you ask somebody, hey, how do you feel? How are you doing? And they say, actually, 
not very well. Ooh, that's inconvenient. <laughs> I was really hoping to just kind of nod at you and break away. Now I've got to sit here and listen. It doesn't really work for you, does it? When we're asking the question, we're not actually asking the question. We're saying, what's up? Our, our questions are, are the, the verbal equivalent of this. That's how guys do it. What's up? And you don't want to get back. Come here. I need you. There is this idolatry of freedom. I think it's one of the primary reasons people don't join community groups. There seems to be this mythical fear in the hearts of people who put off community group. If I join, I'm in for life, and these people are going to be all over me like flies on poop. I, I don't want that kind of constriction. I get it. I, I, I know that feeling of wanting to, to put out a force field. But I also want to let you know, while I understand your desire for freedom, you're missing out on something that could be great in your life. And you're missing out on something that God has put in your life that will provide something you won't find anywhere else. So I want to really encourage you to think about how much you worship the freedom that keeps you and everyone else at arm's length from one another. So we're trying to do a little bit more focus on next steps, give you guys a chance to respond to the message. And I'm going to bring the plane in for a landing with just some concrete next steps. Gasp. It's almost done. It's only 11.30. What should we do? But I want to give you some time to think about how you're going to respond to all this. Because too often we just kind of give you these things and we rush off and everyone's like, I didn't get the time I needed to sit and really process that. So we're going to get some of that time. And I want to give you a few suggested responses to a message like this. The first is, would you honestly evaluate the loneliness in your own life? I don't want to accuse anyone of being in denial, but you'll know if you really ask the hard questions whether you're in denial or not. And maybe shame keeps you from admitting that you're lonely. Maybe you are actually lonelier than you feel because you have settled for so much less than real relationships. Maybe what you'll find is as you're entering your twilight years, you've created a loose network of buddies and dudes and coffee shop, chatty girlfriends, but you don't really have that friend of my heart. One of the startling things I read in these books was that the greatest loss of of relationship in American life is outside of the family. We still have fairly decent relationships within the nuclear family, but more and more adults are not finding deep friendships outside of the home. That everybody is just high-bye, play-date-type friends. We have grown-up play-dates, man. What's shameful is children on play dates connect more deeply than we do on our play dates. And so maybe you're lonelier than you feel. And maybe you're actually not lonely at all. Maybe you're not even alone. But maybe someone you care about right in front of you is shriveling in loneliness and you don't know it. And so assess honestly where the loneliness might be. It might be in your life. It might be in the life of someone you care about. Here's another next step to consider. If you've made an idol out of success or freedom, where you've guard these two things more than, look, I'll go as far as you want, but if it starts infringing on my ability to chase the dream or to remain unattached and, and free, I'm not going there with you. Don't obligate me to things. I'm a wild stallion. I run in the open plains. I, I don't want to be in a corral. 
American doesn't understand that feeling. I mean, even as I say it, I'm thinking that open plane sounds pretty attractive so far. But what you gain in the corral is something you can't find out there. And so if you've made an idol out of success and freedom, and you'll know it's an idol because you will fiercely fight to defend this above all other things. Nothing can take these things away from you. If that's where you are, I think it's important that you confront that and confess it before God. Let me give you one last suggested next step. And for this, I'm going to take you to the rest of that familiar passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And that is this. Intentionally commit to walking in relationship with someone in your life. Intentionally commit to making a relational investment in somebody else's life. And you might say, well, where's the guidance? What kind of relationship am I to to engage in? Well, let me look at the last four verses that and and walk you through it quickly. In verse 9, it says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. So one way to figure out who should I be investing in is, is there someone in your life you care about who could really use a helping hand right now? Not a lecture, not an infusion of cash, but really just another pair of hands laboring beside them to achieve a goal that's important to them. Is there somebody who really needs your helping hand? Verse 10 says, if one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. So here's another question. Is there someone in your life who needs your help to get back on their feet? Somebody who has endured or suffered a great loss or a setback and they can't get up from this defeat by themselves. Is there someone like that who really just needs you to lend a hand and pull them out of the hole they've fallen into? Verse 11 goes on to say, Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Let's not get too literal on this one. Okay? Um, I know you might want to, it might be relevant, but is there someone in your life who really just needs the warmth of your companionship? I don't think this is that easy to do. I find that when I try to give companionship, I end up giving lectures instead. I have a big problem with that. I need to learn from other people how to just be a companion, how to shut up and stand next to somebody so that just the body heat, the warmth from my heart Let's them know they're not alone. Eventually, I think they will figure it out or ask me for guidance. But sometimes what a person needs more than anything is just a warm body next to them that says, hey, I'm not by myself right now. Is, that's actually, for some of you, that's the easiest thing to do because that's how you're naturally wired. Is there someone in your life right now who really, just nobody ever pauses to stand next to them? Everywhere they go, they walk out into the parking lot, go home, and no one even notices they've disappeared. Is there someone invisible who your love will make visible again? And let me give you one last thing from verse 12a. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. Is there someone in your life who needs your protection? Somebody who's overwhelmed by something, and they need you to come and be a defender, a guardian. Look out for their interests because they don't have a voice. They feel weak. Is there someone like that in your life? If you're a teacher, that might be a kid in your classroom right now. Huge cost to pay attention to that. 
But maybe that's what God is calling you to do. So those are, here are those four, four verses in microscopically small text. I want to just leave that on the screen for you. Remember, honestly evaluate where the loneliness is in your life. If you've made an idol of success and freedom, it's robbing you of relationships. Confess that before God. And then consider whether God is calling you into a greater investment into some relationship in your life based on the guidance provided by these four verses. And so what I'd like to do right now is spend five minutes, okay? Well, that might be too uncomfortably long for some of you. Let's go with three minutes And I just want you to have some time in quiet just to mold this over. And you have these these bulletins, these these little folded papers. And uh, if you want, just in that blank space for notes or next steps, write down if you want to make a a commitment, something you will actively do in response to this. I think it's important that we get in the habit of doing that Sunday after Sunday. So in three minutes, I'll come back up and I'll pray for us. And then uh, we will close out with a song or two. Okay? I know that for some of you, um, this was not an easy topic to hear about because it speaks to the heart of the pain that defines your life right now. I want you to know that if you are feeling this very sharply, this feeling of being alone, um, we acknowledge the validity of that feeling. And I want you to know more important than what we acknowledge, God sees what you're feeling. He understands. Our God is no stranger to feeling alone. He hung alone on that cross. No one could go there with him. He was probably the most alone anyone has ever been. So that he felt forsaken. But I also want you to know that there is a ray of hope found in God's word. And we're going to go after true community with great vigor through this series looking at what God has to say through his word to guide us into more meaningful connections with one another. Because he hung on a cross to make possible a new community, a deeper level of relationship than was ever possible before. And we want to honor him by building that kind of community here among us. So God, we do pray for your help, that by the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit, the nature of relationships that this church would radically change. And we pray for your loving care to be poured out on those who feel very alone, struggling to find their place in this family. That over the course of this series, you would work in our lives to embrace one another so that everyone who wants to can find family and home in this place. We pray it filled with faith and hope in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.